Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. What follows is an edited version of a fireside chat with members of the Integral Life Practice Community. It is a wonderful privilege for me to share this longest afternoon of the year, in the Northern Hemisphere that is, with smart, integrally inspired people who are doing their best to bring wisdom and friendliness to a world that always needs it. So um, what I'd like to do today is a little different from the typical sort of politics and war and the current events. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that has become a main topic of conversation for probably all of us on this call. And that is, so what are you watching? And that question itself gets to an amazing emergent for those of us who are interested in the evolution of culture. And that is the, the emergence of this new media sphere that we're all in, where we can watch anything from anywhere, anytime, basically TV, movies, et cetera, uh, YouTubes, education. It's all there at the push of a button. And this is something that many of us, certainly me, have seen emerge within our lifetimes. It's not so long ago, I was alive then, when somebody could watch all the significant TV shows that there were to watch and see all the significant movies for the most part, even some from foreign countries. You know, if you live near a city and there was a little art cinema. And, you know, again, evolutionarily speaking, we can see that that was at one point true of books as well. It's been said that somebody like Thomas Jefferson, maybe the middle of the 1700s, would be the last human where it would be possible to read every significant book that there was to read on any significant subject. And of course, now there's no end of books. Now there's no end. We can sit at the feet of the greatest teachers and storytellers of all time with no hope of getting all there is to get. So that's why what is your what are you watching becomes a significant question, an important question, because you want to know what's good from the people you respect, who find it worth their time. And uh, I love this term that is arising uh, around this in terms of measurements and metrics. We want to have a we want to have unregretted hours spent online instead of addicted hours or distracted hours, unregretted hours where we're actually getting something for the time we're putting in. And so I'm gonna start with something that you, Namali, turned me on to. And you turned me on to it with high praise. You said that this is the best TV show I've ever seen. And I think you watched it with your mother and I think she said the same thing. And so Chuck and I watched it over a period of a summer, I think two summers ago. And we both said at the end of it that it was the best TV show we've ever seen. So let's just start there at the top. And the show I'm talking about is a show that still not a lot of people know of. It's called A French Village. It's a French TV show, seven seasons, 72 episodes, high budget, high creativity. I don't know who's behind it, but whoever they were, they were a genius at storytelling. And the um, I would recommend it to everybody. The, the quick description on Google is this, says, tracing the experiences of various residents of a fictional small village just inside the occupation zone during World War II, who deal with issues including collaboration, the resistance, the fate of the French Jews, and war profiteering. And that is a, the quickest possible synopsis, but it is so sprawling, so beautifully cast, the story is so impeccably told. And what I like about it and what's possible these days that wasn't possible just a couple decades ago is that this is a French TV show about their history. I don't want an American TV show about their history. I mean, maybe I do, maybe it's good. And, and God knows there have been some good ones, uh, including Dunkirk, I must say, uh, and others. But to see it, the French tell this very significant story using the best of their abilities of 2009 
uh, is just something that adds to the sort of karmic loosh of it, the liquid sort of reality of it. And what one of the things I would point out about the French village that'll keep you in, in the game, not that you need to be, it, it'll pull you through easily, but the ending is just um, magnificent. It's, 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 it's often observed that one of the hardest things about telling a story, writing a story, is how to end it. And in this case, you know, we all know how the French occupation by the Nazis ended, the, the war was over. But in how do you bring it home to today, or do you? Or did you just leave it there in 1945 after telling a magnificent story, you get a nice pan panoramic wide shot and the end comes up, would have been fine. But they were too good to just do that. <laughs> Because, you know, again, this is made in 2009, and many of the characters in the show that you came to know and love are still alive. You know, they're old now. It's 2009. Uh, what, how, what are they feeling? How are they? What's going on there? And so they took a completely different aesthetic turn at the end, different creative approach. And it was unexpected. It was very, I think, risky. Uh, but it was thrilling. And um, just, the, I don't know, the icing on the cake of a true work of art. So, um, yeah. So that's my favorite. And the French, A French Village, check it out. And I'll share a couple of my other favorites with you. And I want you to consider what would be in that category for you. So you can share that with uh, a couple others and with all of us, if you want. And, uh, you know, what's the interesting integral angle on it, if there is one? So, oh, next, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about one of my least favorite, in this case, a movie. And this is another one from Namali. Namali is a good curator of the mediaverse for me. And in this case, she said, Jeff, there's this movie. Everybody's talking about it in the integral world. We got to go see it at the theater. So we did, we were among the first that would just open, but it had gotten a lot of buzz. And it is a movie called uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And so we saw this movie, we sat there and watched it. And um, at the end of it, when it was finally over, Namali looked at me, you know how you look at somebody, you just seen a movie, are we gonna agree, are we gonna disagree? I look at Namali and she looks up at me and said, that was the worst movie I've ever seen. And I agree. I thought it, I couldn't, I literally couldn't wait for it to be over and was so relieved when it was. Yet, we're, <laughs> it was, I just read about it in Wikipedia, the most awarded film of all time, when you consider all the SAGs and the Academy Awards and all the different award shows the most awarded film of all time, 11 Academy Award nominations and seven wins, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Original Screenplay, Best Editing. These are not small awards. <laughs> and so, you know, I, in some ways I, I still don't get it, but it's interesting. And I think it's interesting evolutionarily too. Uh, I'm going to read the first review on Google. If you go Google it, they have all the reviews. Here's the very first paragraph of the very first review, and I think it says a lot. And of course, it's, he's getting five stars from this person. Uh, he writes, this movie is easily going to be my top 10 favorites of all time list. I absolutely love the concept of the multiverse and all the different versions and ideas of it that people have. So I may be a tad bit biased, but this movie is genuinely near perfection in every way. There were so many places where everything could have gone completely wrong and ruined the whole film had it been done differently, but that didn't happen. It manages to be so freaking chaotic and all over the place throughout its entire runtime, while somehow also being completely down to earth and sensible enough that I feel that anyone could understand and follow how everything worked and what was happening and not be bored or under overwhelmed. So not really bored and overwhelmed here, you know, and, uh, and, 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 but again, this is 
one of the things, I don't know, it's maybe it's integral, maybe it's just maturity, but I don't think that means it's bad. I didn't like it. I didn't get it. But uh, clearly it wasn't. People loved it. You could see the results. Uh, so, you know, it's not that it was bad. It, this is how I interpret it. And Namali, I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say too. But it's not bad as much as it was sort of beyond me. And And I mean, evolutionarily speaking, in the sense that I don't think my mind will ever in this lifetime be able to process the complexity required to appreciate that movie somehow, you know, it was just too much. And, it, and it's, it's, it's like uh, video games. It's like, it's an art form that to me is the province of people younger than yeah. me. I, it, it just seems to turn out that way. I made it to Pac-Man. But after that, it was goodbye forever to this great art form. It's a bigger box office than cinema. And, you know, just watched it go into the infinite new sea of reality. So, you know, this is about the multiverse, everything, everywhere, all at once. It's about um, a lot of cultural uh, references I don't think I get. You know, the googly eyes and the hot dog fingers and things like that. I don't, I don't know where they come from. And um, and to me, here here would be the question to me as to is this movie green or is it integral or, you know, it's probably both. I think we could have some assumption there. Uh, but in what way? Because it's very deconstructive. It's very everything all at once. So that's very green in a sense. It's just, you know, there's the whole kaleidoscope of life is there. Um, but is it is there some way in which it's flying in formation? And if there is, that would be some sort of an integral impulse that's coming online, it would seem to me. I Apparently there was, I didn't get it. But I will say this one last detail, uh, that the first 20 minutes of the movie were, I, I was so excited. I, I just, I remember settling down in my seat thinking, oh my God, this is gonna be one of the best movies I've ever seen. And, um, it took a turn, <laughs> so I'll put it that way. Okay, so on to more favorites. Okay, so one I, I that's fresh in my mind because Chuck and I just watched it and we just finished it about a month ago. We watched it all through the winter was Downton Abbey. And I resisted Downton Abbey for a long time because it seemed kind of soap operation. I wasn't sure I'd like it, uh, but I did. I loved it actually, and um, and I realized that that's true. That my 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 initial resistance is true of a lot of what turns out to be my favorite shows. I watch them years after they're out. So I think of The Sopranos, Game of Thrones, even The French Village. I waited years to watch it, and I guess maybe I want to see if it stands the test of time. I don't know exactly what, but I think that's probably a good sign if it's still respected years a few you know at least a few years later. And so Downton Abbey is the story of the emergence of modernity into a high traditional world in England, starting basically in the late 1800s and moving through the 1920s. And it's the story of a big house, Downton Abbey, and these big houses, they call them, they were the center of society. They basically owned the land, they owned the town, the people were tenants, the people worked for them. Uh, it was not a bad life considering the life of, of you know, earlier times. Uh, and yet, you know, the march of progress. And so we have industrialization, um, the, the electricity, uh, the telephone. I think one of the fun, funniest scenes to me was uh, at the very beginning, the Dowager Countess, who is the old lady, she's the grandmother of the estate. This is played by Maggie Smith. And it's just an amazing performance for all of the seasons. And Maggie Smith is an old lady and she's well into her 80s now. And she carried this role. And in one of the first scenes is where she's coming into the drawing room and they have an electric light. And she said, oh, the glare. And yet, you know, here it comes. Electricity, the telephone, World War I. Um, and... Um, and it's just, you, you see the, um, how untenable, I mean, how untenable that life was uh, as modernity rolled in. Uh, first of all, the son, the, the, the Earl, uh, the son of the, the Countess, 
he couldn't manage the place. He had to do what a lot of these earls and nobility and aristocrats did. He came to America and married an heiress so that he could have enough money to keep things going. And that worked out for a couple of decades. But still, at some point, it just becomes untenable for the younger generation to wear a tuxedo and a gown for dinner every night. It's just mind numbing. And so just, just you just feel the consciousness arising after World War One, and, you know, the communications and the phonograph. And you realize just how much of drama, great literature, great stories of all time are centered around the conflict between emerging and resisting stages of development, new stages of development coming online, in this case, modernity coming out of traditionalism. But uh, a lot of coming of, coming of age, cultural coming of age stories, you might say. And I think of The Sopranos, it's true of The Sopranos. You know, even think of the intro of The Sopranos, driving with that, woke up this morning, got myself a gun. And he's driving from the mean city streets to this manicured suburban house. And this is Tony, the vi vicious mobster who is having panic attacks. You know, so this is that sort of red warrior mob consciousness encountering modernity and even post-modernity. He sees a psychiatrist. Uh, and, and what an interesting story it is and, and how much it tells in terms of development. And then there's Game of Thrones, which is in some ways interesting and conspicuous because it doesn't tell that story. It's one of the, 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 the shows I can point to that where nothing evolves. <laughs> it's sort of this medieval kingdom of brutality um, and for thousands of years and nothing changes. And, and, and yet that's interesting because in some ways it's, that's true of human history. It certainly change was not discernible in the thousands of years of warrior consciousness and, and traditional consciousness as well. Thousands of years where not much changed until, you know, it did, the modernity came in. Uh, another one I think of that I love, 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 watched it over a period of um, a summer. Uh, and that's, I think it was last summer. And that's a show called The Last Kingdom. Another one I had not heard of, but it's like Game of Thrones, a little more comic bookish, maybe, but not in a way that's objectionable. I, I liked it for that. And it takes place in 8th century England. And it's historical in a sense. Uh, it's King Alfred fighting the Vikings. So again, this, these stages of consciousness in conflict, the red warrior Vikings coming down and raiding the farmers trying to you know, Christian, um, small towns, kingdoms, and the conflict between those two, which went on for hundreds of years um, and in very interesting ways where, you know, it wasn't just like red stayed red and blue stayed blue, you know, in terms of traditional versus warrior. Uh, they, if finally the Vikings just, they couldn't resist it. They became traditionalists too. They became farmers, they became Christians. And, you know, you see the movement of history. And in this show, The Last Kingdom, it's carried very well by um, the main character, Uhtred, who was born aristocratic and was raised till he was maybe 12. And the Vikings raided, kidnapped him, and then be he became a Viking. And that, of course, happened. You know, the in raiding parties would kill the men, rape the women, and take the kids. You know, that's just standard procedure at that stage of development. So um, that's what happened. And um, great show. All right. So sort of phenomena or a, something I'm looking for these days, I think from, uh, you know, Integral being a source of this quest of mine, is to find shows that transmit uh, history in a way that is honoring of history the way it was experienced at in its time and not which is what art does all the time there's nothing wrong with it per se is we put our frame of consciousness back in historical drag 
There's a lot of that that's been going on for a long time. It's, you know, it's from the Lone Ranger and Tonto, whatever it might be. I, I think of it sometimes is, is the Flintstone effect. It's like, yeah, we have Fred and Wilma Flintstone, but they're basically the honeymooners from the 50s, <laughs> minus the domestic violent threats. Uh, you know, Jackie Gleason to the moon, Alice. Remember that? And the Flintstones is that, you know, a cartoon version of that that takes place in the Stone Age, but it's a transference of the sensibility of the basically America in the 50s, as is the Jetsons, you know, also interesting because it's the future and they have all these gadgets and everything. But Jane, his wife, can't think of anything better to do than stay home and, you know, wear her little skirt and apron. So, you know, that's what happens but there's um there's a the one person i would point out that is really trying to do authentic um sensibilities of in in history is the filmmaker dave eggers and he just well i guess it's probably a year ago now released a movie called the northman which is a viking movie um with uh, Alexander Skarsgård, and it's really, let me see if I can see what he wrote about it here. Um, well, at any rate, um, he, he there, there, there's it's a, it's a very brutal movie. There's a lot of magic to it. There's not, in some ways, a narrative drive like there is in you know most Viking movies, there's sort of this revenge thing going on. There's a lot of sort of uh, impressionistic kind of mystical thinking, uh, and I, I loved it. And uh, and and I particularly loved his previous movie called The Witch, subtitled A New England Folk Tale. And it's about a time in American history that, first of all, really fascinates me. It's a time of the Puritans, and it's a world of magic, black magic, possession. You know, these things that arise when life conditions for people are extreme, which is how they were in pre-modernity for the most part. And now you're moving from traditional, you know, on a good day, England to the wilds of North America. And so it's really a big step down. You're moving into almost a hunter and gatherer kind of a, a life condition. And people in that era, and I, you know, read a lot of history and, and so forth, they're um, you know, they're living in a world of spirits, good spirits, God, salvation, but also um devils and witches. And that's what was the reality here. This is 1630 when this movie took place. And it's a walled town in New England. They don't really say where. And it's a story of a family, a father, a mother, five children, who are cast out of the walled community. That's always the fear in, at that stage. You're going to be cast out of the village. Uh, and the reason they're cast out is because they're even more crazy religious than the regular Puritans. So... Again, in this world, people aren't really thinking about freedom of expression or, or you know, uh, the, living your dream. They're into conformity, and you got to support the leader. You got to play by the rules. You got to do what you're told. And if you don't, there's no extra capacity in the town to be able to handle you, psychically or physically. You can't accommodate you, so you got to. You're shunned. You're cast out which is standard procedure and often means death for the whole family. So that's what that's how what's happening here. So the family goes out into the woods, you know, what is so such an archetypal metaphor for early humans all around the globe where you're basically on the edge of nature, you know, which is just full of spirits and all kinds of stuff, you know, all the stuff of myth and magic. So the family, they do survive. They found a meadow in the wilderness. They built a farm. They surrounded it by um, uh, the fields. And, um, you know, they they didn't have any other adults to relate to. They had a bunch of kids. And at some point, their dark imaginings start to get the best of them. And they are beset by a series of tragedies. 
and they begin to see the work of the devil and sorcerers and witches at work all around them, including in each other. And particularly, they focus on one child, adolescent girl, that they begin to scapegoat, that is, drive all evil into it. And, um, and I won't go into much more, except to say that there is a, a thrilling authenticity to it. Uh, and, and this is Dave, Dave Eggers, his, his thing, that's his, his artistry is doing this, and with the Northmen, and the, with, the, with this one called the Witches. Um, they actually built the cabin that the family lived in to completely authentic specifications. They planted the farm, they filmed as the crops were growing in chronological order. They did all the interior scenes with open flame lighting as best they could, at least. And um, one of the best things about it that I love is that they went back and drew real dialogue from people's diaries and written court records and prayer manuals and Cotton Mather's accounts of witchcraft. And as here's what Robert Edgar said about it. He said, I would find and take phrases out of all of them and line them up and had phrases that had to do with the devil and phrases that had to do with being happy and phrases that had to do with being sad. And he worked these phrases into the dialogue. So it it has that, you know, real transmission. The downside is it's hard to understand. And I saw it in the theater the first time and I didn't really know what they were saying much, but come, subtitles come to the rescue. And I watched it again a couple of weeks ago and so good. Um, so um, yeah, the music was thrilling, acting amazing. Um, uh, the critics gave it 90%, the viewers only 54. And a lot of people I know were frustrated by the movie and also frustrated by the Northman. And, um, you know, again, one of the toughest things is doing the ending. And this one is so, so good because, it, again, it could have been ambiguous, mysterious, enigmatic. They could have just had the end come up as they did a shot of the forest, but they didn't. They went into a specific, vivid, um, perspective-shattering ending, and I um, recommend it. All right. So, you know, in terms of uh, just one more example I want to use here, and this is another one of a creative movie maker who I don't really like his work. This is, this is one I don't like. And that's Taylor Sheraton. I don't like his stuff. He's the Yellowstone guy. I, I tried, I took three stabs at Yellowstone because they have a lot of shirtless lumberjacks. You know, it's like, and I wanted that. I like that part. But, you know, it's it just never grabbed me because it, there was something missing. And uh, so anyway, he comes out with the show 1883. And this is the story of the Dutton family, which is the Yellowstone family in the earlier <laughs> cowboys you're right sorry about that um hang on so this is sort of the prequel to yellowstone and it's about the wagon trains west in 1883 it stars faith hill and her husband tim mcgraw and i was excited about it because i love that era in history and i had read good things about it and i actually thought i enjoyed it for the first few episodes, in a sense, uh, I, what really pulled me along was the huge budget, um, the authentic, they were very authentic to the wagon trains, how they looked, how they camped, the actual machinations of the wagon train were very good. And, you know, I know a thing or two about that. I, I like that sort of thing. And, um, but the problem was the writing was, modern you know and, and the sensibility to me it was modern and even postmodern. it's like um liberals ideas of conservatives <laughs> you see a lot of that in um in the media and in entertainment because most of the people making entertainment are not traditionalists you know or never have been in many cases so it's a, it's always something i smell and feel and this is, so this is a story of, it, it focuses on a young girl. Of course, the protagonist has to be female. Fair enough. But that is an iron rule at this stage of the game. Um, and, um, and, and she's coming of age. 
and she's Hollywood beautiful. And that's all good. And I could see Faith Hill's work done. And I, that does bother me. And good old Maggie Smith in, the, in um, Downton Abbey. She didn't have any work done until the last couple of seasons. <laughs> I don't know. I have this theory that human beings, we're going to get all kinds of work done. We've all had our teeth fixed, except me. Uh, and, you know, that that will continue to happen. We see it in other countries, particularly. We see it here, too. Uh, and then at some point in our evolution, we're going to get tired of that and we're going to see the beauty of aging. This body positivity thing is actually going to move to the last bastion, which is aging. And I think that's probably a couple generations from now, but that's my prediction and we'll just have to wait and see. But at any rate, in the meantime, that kind of does bother me. And even this, you know, the Faith Hill character is kind of Faith Hill. You know, she's kind of assertive and she's sassy and and Tim McGraw is kind of taciturn and doesn't have much to say. He's kind of Tim McGraw. And um, and, I'll, and I'll read a little excerpt. This is from the uh, narrator who is this young girl, I believe Elsa. Yeah, it's Elsa. And she narrates the whole thing. And, and here's some of what she says. She says, so much I don't know about life. We learn to read. We learn rules, learn scripture and manners and how to avoid saying or doing things that make others uncomfortable. All those things seem to be the opposite of life. Seem so strange. Now I'm sleeping on the edge of civilization and we leave the edge behind. There are no rules. I remember stories of the great war, how it seemed man had lost all reason, that we'd become animals or perhaps just surrendered to the fact that animals is all we've ever been. Freedom to most is an idea, an abstract idea that pertains to control. That's not freedom. That's independence. And on and on and on she goes with this kind of modern existential nonsense in that context, where people would have been religious, they would have been superstitious. They, uh, you know, the one religious character in the whole show is Faith Hill's sister, Claire who is presented as a fanatic, uh, they all were. <laughs> Fanatics are, uh, they serve their role in development. Uh, and things become so bad, she kills herself in the second episode. So that's it. No more of that sort of magic myth um, sensibility that uh, I find missing in all of his work. So that's my complaint about Taylor Sheridan. All right. Okay, that's uh, what I had. Some of what I had to share, anyway. Um, why don't we share with each other? Uh, we can put people in groups of four for fifteen minutes, as we normally do. And in this um, uh, in this case, I invite you to share some of your favorite shows. What are you watching? Because I want to hear about it. You know, we can put it in the chat um, and we'll have a little open mic here at the end. But for the next 15 minutes, uh, let's do groups of four. Share what you're watching, what you're liking, any integral insights, what you're not liking. Tell me what I did. It's, you know, so is that good? But yeah, uh, I hope you had a good uh, discussion with your friends uh, and um I'd love to hear what you have to say. Also, to bring back from the table the uh, you know argument for everything, everywhere, all at once. Love to hear that. Um, and if you are interested in sharing, raise your hand. And in the meantime, Namali and I were talking, and Namali brought up this whole big. Well, first of all, the idea of how is media an ILP, you know, an integral practice, and. Uh, you know, I, I Namali, I, I invite you to share about that. But, you know, the, the the thing that comes to mind is that it's a little bit like what I was doing when I was talking about what I liked and didn't. It's an opportunity. It's such a good map. It's so has such explanatory value. I mean, it really does. So that you can see the cosmic address of the person who's making the show. You factor that in the cosmic address of the characters. Your cosmic address, that's a practice right there. You know, what type you are, what the stage it's coming from, you know, what state does it evoke? These are very, very helpful. Uh, uh, you know, to like, 
moving the thing on the Google map. You just see more resolution in all of it. So Namali, you were talking about this big category of reality shows. Um, and you mentioned one that you had actually told me about a couple of years ago, and I did watch a couple, and you're right, it was great, called The Repair Shop. Yeah, again, there's just such a, the arts and the media really truly is, I think, an inaugural life practice because it shakes you out of your perspective sometimes. You can take new perspectives, you can break your old perspectives, you can be shocked into new perspectives and talk about state experiences. Like I remember still walking out of the theater having watched Dunkirk, for example, and just whew, like just really feeling it. Um, another movie uh, was the the hidden life for me, just walking to my car and feeling like I'm gonna throw up. I'm gonna throw up because it touched me and it moved me so much. Three hour long movie. Yeah. And just gripped by it the whole time, you know. Um, so the repair shop was one something that I is one of my favorite shows. It's an actual little repair shop, like a cottage somewhere in England, and people bring things to it that they inherited from their great grandfather or you know whatever. So like sometimes there are things like a toy that somebody's great great grandfather built out of broken pieces of wood from a plane that he flew uh, at the first world war or something like that and it's a repair shop which is not bringing these old items into like brand spanking like new shiny objects rather it's restoring them to their dignity and so one of the items that I just will never forget is one family brought a violin that was really like, you know, broken. They brought a violin and they explained that the violin was what their great, great grandmother had played at Auschwitz. And this is fresh to me because I just visited Auschwitz about a month ago. Um, yeah, she, you know, the Nazis forced people to sometimes play music when the trains arrived at Birkenau as though like, oh, you're coming to this wonderful place. And how these experts at the repair shop, these restorers, the care that they took to not remove her fingerprints that they could still find on the violin. And rather they, they restored it to a playable violin without removing the story of the violin. And so, yeah, just, I would like sob watching some of these shows. <laughs> No, it's, it's um, you know, one of the sort of integral tr transmissions is it's sort of the transmission itself, that they're going for the karma. You know, they're actually bringing that sense of time and place and dignity to the fore, and we get to be there for that. That's amazing, mm -hmm. you know. And again, perspe perspective shaking and adding, all that good stuff. Uh, so speaking of which... Uh, so everything, everywhere, all at once. Let's go, let's go back to that because that was about multiple perspectives, right? What, what, overload maybe for me, but what do you think? So Nina, you is need to have her hand raised. Yeah, I, I don't have my hand up, but I'm here. Um, and I, I mean, I, I don't know what to say about why I liked it. I, I was thoroughly entertained by the silliness and the goofiness I'm goofy, so I like the sausage fingers. I think I just like that they were jumping into different uh, timelines and dimensions, and it, it, it helped me to think about what's going on in other dimensions that I'm not aware of right now in this moment. So yeah. I think that's why I liked it, is because it, it made me think about what might be going on that I'm completely unaware of. Oh, boy. Well, what a question that is. And uh, you know, I'd be grateful to any work of art that would evoke that in me. I'm glad it did in you. Um, and, you know, it makes me want to reconsider and maybe rewatch it at some point. <laughs> it's not a small screen and I'm not Don't surrounded. Torture yourself. <laughs> yeah, so I was more really impressed by it. Honestly, I think it's it's hinting towards the opening of this AI explosion time where it's like there's a million stories happening at once and what's the through line? And in that movie, it seemed like it was orienting towards the end about, especially when a time is super chaotic, everyone be kind, like as a default mode, try to like, like engage, like recognize that it's all confusing for all of us. So like, 
don't 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 lead with hurting someone and i think that's such a deep integral impulse um and the way it plays out isn't just a sweet kindness it actually was saying how can i be kind to this person in a way that actually makes them happy so there's a scene where she's going up the staircase with kung fu moves and like is specifically doing the happy things for each person and then they all of a sudden find their happy place and they stop warring against each other and then there's a thread of which is similar in the matrix trilogies of there's obviously a dichotomy between eternalism and nihilism or permanence and nothingness and the hyper fragmentation of nothingness that's embodied by that chaotic impulse that's going to destroy the multiverse of whatever with the daughter. Um, that there's a surrender or an acceptance of the nothingness towards the end. It's like, okay, this is what you want. I allow it. And in that allowance, was the autonomy or the like self-rooted identity of the daughter being like, I don't know what this is. My my identity is utterly splashed open and I'm with you in that confusion. And that coherence in the decoherence, I think is like a very strong integral move. But to get there, you have to totally be shaken in the snow globe of utter vomitous, chaotic, hyper fragmented, green, gone wild, crazy explosion well <laughs> yeah right on thank you Dragpa. i again more inspiration to give it another shot and uh i i i didn't get any of that so i appreciate it karen yeah wow now after what Dragpa said now i want to go back and watch it again because uh, i didn't quite get that uh i wouldn't have put it together like that what came up for me was that in about a few minutes in or five minutes in, I had to just surrender any sense of trying to make sense of it at a rational coherent. I just had to totally let go of that at part of me and just allow it. It's kind of like a total surrender to your guru or to your, you know your God or whatever. Just let it happen. And I, I mean, I love pieces of it that that crazy. I you know whatever drug put call it the the green gone wild. The, the 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 it was so green gone wild that the through line that came through the pieces that stayed as I just let it wash past was that this is ended up being a very pro life movie and a pro-life message at a time when the green gone wild as our uh, green leading edge breaks down under the impact of the new emerging integral era you know what we tend to see is what's breaking down and all time all present all at once i mean that is kind of a that is a spiritual insight but it's crazy making to the intellect so having completely surrendered the rational intellect and then following just the crazy pieces, loving the sausage fingers, loving the Kung Fu fanny pack. I mean, you wear a fanny pack, that is so uncool. But then the first martial art thing where the, the anti-hero husband, nerd husband, is this super martial arts hero and his weapon is this fanny pack that he's doing, these amazing martial arts. I mean, just enjoying the craziness. And the what what we were up against was this absolute nihilistic despair of Green Gone Wild which is so present today. I mean, that really resonated all through. I mean, this is why people, a lot of the mass shooters, they are existential despair and they take a gun, they shoot other people and shoot themselves. That's kind of the ultimate expression of nihilistic despair. And the message, the final message, and Drungpa articulated it better than I can, was so pro-life and pro-kindness, pro, you know, prajna and karuna, compassion and insight and allowing and being with each other, being present with each other. And I love the existential bagel of despair, the everything bagel, which yeah. turned out to be the symbol of utter despair. I mean, there's so much, so much fun stuff in it, but the basic through line was, was the medicine that we need right now to me. Okay. All right. Well, why didn't I see that? What's wrong with me? <laughs> and me. <laughs> and you. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I think just... you and I we have each other, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, God. yeah, no, no, totally. This is so good. And I mean, if I had heard that description, I'd say, boy, I'm for that kind of a movie. Yeah, deconstruct, you know, blow my, blow my mind, and then give me some through line. Uh, I didn't get the through line. I got the mind blown. But fair enough. All good. Anyone else? So one of my all-time favorite shows was Homeland, the political espionage thriller. 
And um, I, I had seen it, the plotting along one week at a time for seven years, which you forget everything that happened the previous season. But then it was all available, and I watched it all pretty much all the way through. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it. And what got me watching it again was this, I can't cite a quality source here, but somebody had said that it was the show that actual intelligence officers thought was the best. Hmm. Very so good. Thought, okay, time to watch it again. Yeah. No, I, I loved it too. It was Claire Danes and uh, every episode, very good at suspense, edge of the seat kind of stuff. Loved it. Cheryl? I don't know if I can put these in an integral lens, but these are two and then a third movie that I've just really enjoyed in the last little while. And one was The Quiet Girl. Mm -hmm. which is a Gaelic movie. It's the first, I think, that's ever been done in Gaelic and um, the Banshees of Inner Sharon. Mm -hmm. oh, and what I really love about those movies is how slow they are. Mm -hmm. And the cinematography is just gorgeous. There's just so much on what's going around these people. But there's also, so, the acting is incredible in these and the shots are all real close-ups. And, you know, so Colin Farrell, and I'll watch just about anything that Colin Farrell is in, and Brandon Fraser, I think these two people, incredibly amazing actors who do so little with their acting, you know, like to have those close-ups of people's faces, and you just see a little something in their eye or just a little twitch or a shoulder that drops. It's just also incredibly subtle. And my ability to just be in there with them is it's very moving i find it really really touching and then there's a scene about a donkey and the banshees that just would break your heart um and then and then just on a slightly different um uh, kind of movie um i was so taken with colin and brendan that i heard that the director that did banshees chose them because he had done um, a movie called in bruges mm -hmm with yeah. them, which is a, a movie about two assassins. Yeah. <laughs> and the chemistry between those two is incredible. Yeah. Like to just watch two people interact that way and um, the humor yeah. is is gorgeous. So it's just something about that psychological uh, yeah. that it's I'm just really, really enjoying right now. And then again, that just beautiful cinematography and quiet. Just yeah. really, really quiet. Very little action. Yeah. 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 Thank you. No, that's that's very true. And I I loved both in Bruges and um and the Banshees. I haven't seen the Quiet Girl, but uh, I'll add it to the list. Anyone else? All right. Well, that means we're complete, perfect, and whole once again. <laughs> I might also, you know, when it comes to sort of expanding perspectives and just exposing ourselves to all these kinds of media, another really uh, incredible source of entertainment and learning these days are YouTube channels. Oh. There are a gazillion different incredible YouTube channels that are, you know, beyond the education you can get from TV or whatever, you know, people just uh, whether it's a travel channel or a philosophy channel or a religion channel or whatever, mathematics channel or, yeah, it's just stunning what, what YouTube channels are there right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. A friend of mine just showed me a channel of a, um, his it's, it's a Guatemalan grandmother making tortillas and she has a cooking show mm -hmm. out of her little shack kind of thing, uh, open fire, and it's got hundreds of thousands of, of, of views. You know, just yeah. that kind of thing. It's just, you if you can imagine it, there it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Japanese movie Drive My Car was wow. really impressive. Um, I think it won an Oscar's Best Foreign Film. It really seemed like a suit, like a very solid integral level expression. Um, a Chekhov director had a big loss recently and he's orienting his directing style is to have all these people who speak different languages get so good at what the literal story like the literal lines of a story is that they no longer are using the language to communicate but they're just 
directly creatively responding to each other in real time in within the container of the checkoff play so well, so that's basically like, wait uh, drop a, so drive my car a japanese movie and it's yeah. based on a checkoff play the, there, it's about a director oh he's an expert of checkoff plays he yeah. goes through this giant heartbreaking unexpected surprising loss and then he still goes into running this uh, a film festival of an, of an upcoming Chekhov play. They audition for it. There's a someone who's deaf, someone who speaks Mandarin, someone who speaks English. Someone, all these people who speak different languages, literally don't understand what they're saying to each other. And then they sit down with his method, repeatedly go over the lines so much that then they just viscerally play off each other without knowing what the other's saying verbally, but just from knowing the framework of the play in their own language. And oh it brings God. this whole coherence thing together with, so all these languages, but it really becomes this pulse of this through line is like so elegant and beautiful and quiet. And he's driven around by this, a driver. And I mean, it's just, honestly, it was the most surprising, like, constant rug pulling movie i've ever seen oh but in the quietest way like like layer after layer of these like total surprise twists i mean yeah it was oh gorgeous well I, I, we have to watch it tonight i mean <laughs> drive, my, drive my car yeah it's long and quiet but worth it oh yeah you inspired me to watch namali you're uh, nodding in assent yes all right. Well, I think we're good. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. It's so fun to hang out with you. And um, I won't be here next in two weeks from now. We were doing the first and third Wednesdays. Uh, but ne the next first Wednesday is the 5th of July, and I'm going to be on a little trip. So uh, I'll see you in a month. But I look forward to it. Happy summer, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Have a lovely afternoon. Until next time.